Wasn't that just beautiful worship? What a blessing that we have such a great worship team and we have the technology to still worship together, even if we're in our own homes this morning. I'm so thankful that God has blessed us with this uh, capability here at Lakes Free Church. Friends, if you missed it earlier this morning, I made a special announcement, and I just want to share one more time. We are very excited. Two weeks from today, Sunday, May 17th, we are going to be hosting a drive-in worship service here at Lakes Free Church. It's going to be an exciting morning. It's going to be a great time for us to come together and worship together, to sing together, to take communion once again together. Uh, it's going to be a terrific morning. We're going to be sending out more details about that in the coming weeks. So be watching your emails. Uh, be watching your church app, uh, the church website, but uh, we're going to communicate more of the specifics to you uh, very soon. But again, that's Sunday, May 17th, and I can't wait to gather together for corporate worship with our church family. Speaking of corporate worship, this morning we wanted to have a time of uh, collective worship where we could participate together in the reciting of God's word. One of the things that we do here at Lakes Free very often is we talk about uh, our priority as a church is keeping the main thing the main thing. And when we talk about the main thing here at Lakes Free, for us, that means the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is no greater passage in all of the Bible that speaks to the gospel of Jesus Christ than that famous Bible verse, John 3.16. I know that many of you have it memorized. Even some of our youngest children watching this morning have that verse memorized. It's a special verse to all of us who know Jesus as our Savior and Lord. Well, this morning, we're going to put that Bible verse on the screen, and I want to invite you to recite with me that great word, John 3.16. Let's recite this together. John 3.16, For God so loved the world, that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Amen. What a joy, what a blessing to be reminded of that central truth of Christianity this morning. Friends, I want to invite you now to join me in bowing your heads and let's have a word of prayer as we prepare our hearts to go to God's word and continue our series in the book of Revelation this morning. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this morning, for the opportunity to worship together, for the technology and, and staff and volunteers that have made this service possible for us today. Lord, we are so blessed here at Lakes Free. We're blessed to have a terrific church family. We're blessed with so many resources uh, to serve the people of our community. And we just give you all the honor, glory, and praise today, Lord. We thank you for your faithfulness to us. We thank you for your goodness to us. Most of all today, we thank you for the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ and that precious promise that we just recited in John 3.16, that we have the promise of new and eternal life through Jesus Christ because of your amazing grace. We thank you for that, Lord. Today, as we continue our series in the book of Revelation, looking at your seven letters to the seven churches in Asia Minor, Lord, we pray that you would open our eyes to the power of your word once again. We pray that you would speak to us exactly where we need to hear from you. We pray, Lord, that you would both convict us and encourage us to walk with you faithfully, to follow you faithfully, to live for you faithfully. So, Lord, help me to communicate this word clearly this morning, and we pray that your Holy Spirit would inspire and illuminate these truths for our benefit. And we pray all this today in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, friends, this morning we're continuing our series in the book of Revelation, chapters 1 through 3. It's titled Church at Risk. And this series has been a very powerful one so far in recent weeks as we have looked at two of Jesus' seven letters to the church 2,000 years ago in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. We've seen words of exhortation and encouragement. We've seen words of challenge and, and conviction. And today will be the same as we turn to our third church, the church in Pergamum. I want to begin this morning by 
reminding us of one of the most famous stories in all of history. It's a story that is found in the tales of Greek mythology. It's a story that I'm sure many of you will be familiar with, the story of the Trojan horse. If you recall the the story of the Trojan horse, maybe you've read Homer's Iliad and Odyssey, or maybe you have seen movies or TV shows depicting the story of the Trojan horse. The, The story of the Trojan horse centers around two great nations that had been locked in a 10 year long battle. The the city-state of Troy in in modern-day Turkey and the city-state of Sparta in ancient Greece. The king of Troy had stolen the wife of the king of Sparta, and he had brought her back to Troy, and her name was Helen, Helen of Troy. We we talk about her as the one who had a face that launched a a thousand ships. Well, the nation of Sparta sent these thousand ships over to Troy, and they laid siege to the great city of Troy. And they were in battle for 10 years without any resolution. And finally, the Spartans realized that there was no way that they were going to break through the impenetrable walls of Troy. And so they hatched a plan, a a surprise attack, in order to take down the city of Troy. They pretended that they were going to be sailing back to Sparta and they built this giant wooden horse, which the Trojans thought they had left there on the shores of Troy as a sacrifice and offering to the gods for a safe voyage back to Sparta. But what the Trojans didn't realize was that inside this wooden horse were dozens of Sparta's most accomplished soldiers. They were hidden inside this large wooden horse. Well, the people of Troy brought this large wooden horse inside their city gates as a, as a symbol of their victory over Sparta. And they celebrated and they rejoiced thinking that they had won the war. And then that night when everybody was sleeping, these soldiers of Sparta snuck out from inside the Trojan horse and opened the gates to the city. And the Spartan soldiers fled into the city and wiped out everybody conquering Troy. It's a classic tale of surprise attack, of sneak attack, of treachery. And it's a fitting story for our message this morning and for our current series, Warning Church at Risk. You see, friends, oftentimes the most serious threats to the church are not from outside, not from the culture around us, but oftentimes the most serious threats to the church are from within. Sneak attacks that come from within the walls, within the body of Christ. And today we're going to look at the example of a church that had fallen prey to one of Satan's most deadly Trojan horse attacks. It's a spiritual Trojan horse that still to this day wreaks havoc within countless churches. It wreaks havoc within the lives of innumerable Christians. It's a Trojan horse that goes by the name of compromise. Compromise. Friends, compromise is such a deceptive tool of our enemy. Compromise happens when a church or an individual Christian begins to sacrifice their biblical convictions for the sake of accommodating the culture in which they live. Like a toxin inside the body, little by little, choice by choice, slowly over time, compromise begins to decay and destroy the faithfulness and the testimony of God's people. It's a subtle and deadly danger facing the church. It's a danger facing the church we're going to look at today, the church in Pergamum. And it's a danger that we're at risk of as well. And so we need to look to God's word. We need to look to what Jesus communicated to the church in Pergamum 2,000 years ago. A message that is still timely and applicable for us today. The message this morning, Jesus' third letter to the seven churches in Asia Minor is found in Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. 
I want to read his letter to the church in Pergamum, and then I want to come back and I want to share with you three observations this morning from Jesus' letter to this particular church. Let's read this morning, starting in verse 12 of chapter 2. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast to my name, and you did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Friends, this is such an important letter for us to look at, to study, to to allow the Holy Spirit to impress upon our hearts this morning. It's such a serious warning. A church at risk of losing their conviction in the Lord and compromising for the sake of accommodating the world around them. I want to make three observations about Jesus' letter to the church in Pergamum. Number one this morning in Jesus' letter to Pergamum, we find a church standing tall where Satan sat. This was a church standing tall where Satan sat. Jesus says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Pergamum, like the other two churches we've looked at so far in our series, was not an easy place to be a Christian 2,000 years ago. Pergamum at this time was the capital of Asia Minor. It was the northernmost city that Jesus would write to in these seven letters. It was about 40 miles north of Smyrna, which we looked at last week. And as the capital of Asia Minor, it was also recognized as one of the most, if not the most, distinguished city in all of Asia. Pergamum was a major center of arts and culture in the ancient world. In fact, it boasted the second largest library in all the world, only behind Alexandria in Egypt. Pergamum had a library that contained over 200,000 volumes. It also was a city that hosted the Mayo Clinic of its day, the, the temple of Asclepius, the god of healing. People from all over the ancient world would come to Pergamum, to the temple of Asclepius, to be healed by her priests who served as doctors. And so this was a well-known city a place of culture, a place of learning, a place of medicine. It was also a place that hosted temples to numerous gods, at least four major temples throughout the city of Pergamum. One of the most prominent was the temple to Zeus, the altar to Zeus, which sat a thousand feet above the surrounding countryside. Zeus, who was known 2,000 years ago as the king of the gods, supposedly sat there in the temple of Zeus on top of the hill of Pergamum, ruling and reigning over all who came or who looked to the hill of Pergamum. This was very likely the reference to the throne of Satan that Jesus speaks of in our passage. This pagan city full of idolatrous temples, the the home of Zeus, the king of the gods. Not only that, there in Pergamum, they also had a temple dedicated to the Roman imperial worship. In fact, it was the very first temple built, dedicated to a Roman empire, the emperor, the Roman emperor Augustus. It was built in 29 B.C., You might remember the name Augustus. He was Caesar at the time Jesus Christ was born. And he was worshipped by the Roman Empire as a god. 
And when you think about all of this cultural background there in Pergamum, you can begin to understand why the pressure for this church to compromise would have been so great. Surrounded by a pagan culture, surrounded by immorality, surrounded by all of this great culture and learning. And these Christians must have thought, is it really worth holding fast to the message of Jesus Christ? Well, friends, we know that according to Jesus, this church had stood fast for the truth of the gospel. They had stood fast on the name of Jesus Christ, even in this place where Satan was enthroned, the place where Satan sat, this church had stood fast for the cause of the gospel. Jesus opens his letter to this church in Pergamum, reminding them of who he is. He says, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. Now, friends, this was an important way for Jesus to open the letter to the church in Pergamum. You see, the Christians in Pergamum were under severe persecution. They were under great threat every day for following Jesus Christ. Because they did not bow to Caesar, the imperial government there in Pergamum at any time could arrest them, could imprison them, could even take their lives. The proconsul there in Pergamum had the power of life and death. He held the power of the sword and he wielded it over the church in Pergamum. We know this, for example, because Jesus references one of their members, a man named Antipas who gave his life as a result of the persecution there in Pergamum. The government had taken his life because he refused to bow down to Caesar. He stood fast on the name of Jesus Christ. And so Jesus opens his letter to Pergamum, reminding them that he, Jesus, is the one who has the sharp two-edged sword. And the reason Jesus opens his letter this way is because he wanted the church in Pergamum to be very clear that while the local government may have had the power of the sword, the one who was the true authority over life and over death was Jesus Christ. Jesus was the one who truly held the power of the sword. He is the one who superintends all of creation. He is the one who decides the days of our lives, who holds the power over life and death. Friends, you might remember what Jesus shared in his revelation to John back in chapter 1, verses 17 and 18. Jesus said to G- Jesus said here, fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. Here, Jesus reminds John and then writing to the churches in Asia Minor that he was the first and the last. Jesus oversaw all of creation, all of history. He superintends all the days of our lives. He is sovereign over all. And he holds the keys to death in Hades. He is the one who determines life and death. The provincial governor there in in Pergamum may have held the authority of the sword, but it was Jesus who was in true control. As we read in Proverbs 21, verse 1, the, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Friends, understand this. Jesus is always in control. Even in times of trial and tribulation and persecution, Jesus wanted the church in Pergamum to know very clearly that while the government may hold the sword, it was he, Jesus, who truly had the power over life and death. What a great word of encouragement for these Christians in the midst of a hostile culture. To know that nothing enters our lives that isn't first father filtered. God is in control. God determines the course of our days. The king's heart is like a stream of water in the hands of the Lord. Well, Jesus goes on in his letter to the church in Pergamum in verse 13. He says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. 
I want to make a comment here about this statement. Jesus telling the church in Pergamum, I know where you dwell. This is a very interesting word for Jesus to use in regards to the church there in Pergamum. To to speak of them as dwelling. The the word dwell there in the Greek is katoikio. Katoikio. Now, that word might sound a bit familiar to you. Some of you here at Lakes Free who are a part of our adult Bible fellowships. We have an adult Bible fellowship group here known as oikia. And the word oikia in the Greek means a household or a family. Well, well, Jesus uses a very similar word here in reference to the Christians in Pergamum. He says, I know where you dwell, the Greek word, katoikio, katoikio. And it means a certain fixed and durable dwelling. This was a stable dwelling. This was a dwelling with a strong foundation. Now, this is a very unusual term in the New Testament in regards to the church. You see, oftentimes in the church, we are referred to, Christians in the early church were more often referred to as sojourners. And and, and the more common word in the Greek for the church was peroikio, peroikio. And, And that word refers to temporary residence. Not a fixed permanent dwelling, but, but aliens and strangers just passing through, peroikio. But that's not the word Jesus uses for the church in Pergamum. He uses the word katoikio, which means a fixed dwelling, a solid dwelling, a stable dwelling. These were people, friends, who were standing fast. They were built with a strong foundation, holding fast to the word of God in a very hostile environment. They were people who dwelled there in Pergamum for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus commends them for being cat oikio, people who were fixed, strong, dwelling in Pergamum for the cause of the gospel. And friends, there's a lesson in this for us this morning. As Christians, we know that this world is not our true home. We are just temporary strangers passing through. We are just aliens and sojourners in this world. But friends, at the same time, Jesus' letter here reminds us that we are not to seek escape from this world. God calls us to stand fast wherever he places us for the sake of Christ and for the lost within our community. We need to be people who dwell, who are rooted and fixed and strong for the cause of Christ wherever he places us. This is why I've always looked very fondly upon those pastors and and missionaries who make long-term commitments to their place of service for the sake of the kingdom. I think of our own former senior pastor here at Lakes Free, Rick Stanghelly. 33 years serving the Chisago Lakes community. 33 years serving Lakes Free Church. This was a man who dwelled like the Christians in Pergamum, who was fixed and rooted for the sake of the gospel in his community. I I think of some of our missionaries around the world who go and they leave everything behind and they make a long-term commitment to be rooted and fixed in a foreign culture for the sake of the gospel. I think of friends and truly heroes of the faith, like, like, like the Pino family who years ago moved down to the Mosquito Coast in Panama to serve an unreached people group there. I think of our friends, the Wahlbergs, who are serving in remote islands in Indonesia, in the South Pacific. I, I think of friends like Carrie Gustafson serving the Lord for years in Thailand, translating the word of God. These are people who have a calling and they're rooted and they're fixed for the sake of their calling. They are people who dwell. They're people who dwell. Friends, people like these can serve as a model for all of us. Let me ask you this morning, where has God called you? Where has God called you? Wherever God has called you, friends, that's where you dwell. You put down roots. You become a fixed, firm, stable dwelling wherever God places you for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's where you take your stand. Now understand, friends, God doesn't call all of us to be pastors or missionaries. 
But he does call all of us to be his ambassadors wherever we dwell. Take your stand. Take your stand at your home, in your marriage, by being faithful to your wife, by being committed to the vows that you made before the Lord. Take your stand at church by serving the church, by giving to the church, by by working with the church for the cause of the gospel in our community. Take your stand. Take your stand in your neighborhood. Your neighborhood, friends, is your mission field. We're called to be people who are fixed and dwelling in a local area for the cause of Christ. Take your stand in your workplace, shining brightly the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ to all your co-workers. Friends, our world needs Christians who are willing to stand fast. And Jesus commended the church in Pergamum for doing just that. One of the examples Jesus gives here in our opening verses in Pergamum, verse 13, Jesus points out the example of Antipas. Antipas, who, who did not deny his faith, even to the point of death. It's very interesting that Jesus should note this man Antipas, because we don't know much about Antipas at all. We know next to nothing about Antipas. Church tradition tells us that Antipas was martyred for his faith, roasted alive inside the brass idol of a bull. Friends, can you imagine that? But we don't know anything about Antipas. We just know his name. We don't know who he was. We don't know what he did. We don't know what led to his arrest and martyrdom. We don't know anything about this man. But I'll tell you something this morning. Jesus knew him. Jesus knew Antipas. Our good shepherd, Jesus Christ, knows all of his sheep intimately. He knows us by name, friends. And there is no act of service or suffering or sacrifice that goes unnoticed by our Lord. Jesus knew Antipas. Let me ask you this morning, do you ever feel as if God has forgotten you? Do you ever wonder if if God even cares? Do you ever wonder if your service and sacrifice for the Lord is even being noticed? Well, friends, I want to remind you this morning, Antipas is proof that God always cares. God knows. God knows your name. He knows who you are. I want that to encourage you this morning. Your Lord knows you. He knows your trials. He knows your sacrifice. He knows your service. The Lord knows your name. What a great encouragement for us. So positively, we see here in Pergamum a church that was standing tall for the sake of the gospel. But at the same time, not all was well within this church there in Pergamum. This leads me to point number two this morning. In Jesus' letter to the church in Pergamum, we find an unfaithful bride with bows on the side. And here in verses 14 through 15, we begin to see clearly the risk facing the church there in Pergamum. What was that risk? Losing conviction. Losing their Christian conviction. See, for all their faithfulness in standing fast for the name of Christ in the midst of a hostile culture, Jesus warns the church in Pergamum that there were some among them who were compromising their Christian convictions. And how were they doing this? They had been flirting with other lovers. Let me read for you verses 14 through 15 of Jesus' letter. He says, but I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrificed to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Here Jesus shares with this church that for so long had stood fast for his word that there were some among them who were compromising they were being unfaithful to their Lord. They, they had two lovers on the side. This was a church that had been called to be the bride of Christ, wedded to Christ. And yet here they are flirting with two other lovers by the name of Balaam 
in Nicholas. This was a church that had fallen prey to the slow erosion of cultural accommodation. Jesus cites these two lovers that, that had victimized this church, that had led them to compromise their convictions. He, he, he speaks, first of all, to Balaam. We're going we're gonna to talk about some of the background of this tomorrow night in our pastor's study at 7 o'clock. But, but who was Balaam? Balaam was a false prophet of Moab. And in, in the exodus of Israel, as they were leaving Egypt, coming to the promised land, the king of Moab was afraid that the Israelites would conquer his nation just like they had conquered all the other nations as they approached the promised land. And so the king of, the king of Moab brought this false prophet Balaam and, and sought his counsel. And Balaam led the children of Israel astray by sending Moabite women into their camps to seduce them. And we read in the book of Numbers that These Moabite women led the men of Israel into moral compromise, into spiritual compromise. See, Moab couldn't defeat Israel externally, but our enemy knew that compromise from within could take them down. And God judged Israel harshly for their sin because of the stumbling block that Balaam had put before them. Jesus says here in his words that, that Balak and Balaam had put this stumbling block before the sons of Israel. It's very interesting. In the Greek, this word stumbling block is scandalon. It, it, it means a trap, a snare, a cause for stumbling. You might think that word sounds familiar, scandalon. And that's because it's where we get our English word scandal from. Friends, understand what the Lord saw as a scandal these Christians in Pergamum saw as a cause for celebration. They had become entangled with moral compromise, practicing the idolatry of the city of Pergamum, practicing sexual immorality there in the city of Pergamum. It was causing their witness in that culture to be diminished and compromised. And how tragic because they knew what God taught about these things. They knew the words of the Apostle Paul written to the church in Ephesus. Ephesians 5 verse 3. The Apostle Paul told the church in Ephesus, let there not even be a hint of sexual immorality among God's people. And yet here we find the church in Pergamum compromising morally, participating in the idolatry and the sexual immorality of the culture around them. They had allowed the same error that compromised the children of Israel thousands of years earlier to compromise them as a church. There was a second lover at work in the church in Pergamum, and this was Nicholas, the Nicolaitans. Now, that name may sound familiar because we came across them earlier two weeks ago when we looked at Jesus' letter to the church in Ephesus. And if he, in Revelations chapter 2, verse 6, Jesus commended the church in Ephesus. He commended them because they actually hated the work of the Nicolaitans. They, they refuted the teachings of the Nicolaitans. They, they kicked them out of the church. But friends, I want you to notice what's going on here. What the church in Ephesus hated, the church in Pergamum was harboring. They were harboring the false teachings of Nicholas, this first century deacon in the church who had apostatized and become a false apostle. Nicholas began to teach theological heresy, theological compromise. He, he, he began to teach that grace gives us license to sin, that what's done in our body doesn't matter as long as spiritually our hearts are right with God. This is a theological error known as antinomianism. And it provides a religious justification for worldliness. Because as long as our hearts are right with God, we can do anything we want in the body. And so again, the church there in Pergamum had started embracing this heresy, allowing them to participate in the worldliness of the culture around them. Jude verse 3 tells us that we are called to contend earnestly for the faith, once for all entrusted for the saints. But friends, here in Pergamum, we find a church that instead of contending for the faith, had become content with those who had perverted it. Now, friends, I'm going to tell you something this morning. When you talk about applying God's word to our lives and churches today, 
When you think about how we as today's Christians and churches are at risk, you'd have to say that the situation of the church in Pergamum was not all that different from the situation and state of many American Christians and American churches today. Friends, are not many in our churches being ravaged today by moral compromise? Are not many churches and denominations giving themselves wholly over to theological compromise? We look at many Christians in our churches today worshiping the idols of materialism, pornography, infidelity, pursuing leisure and comfort above all else. We we see denominations and churches giving themselves over to theological compromise, denying the reality of absolute truth, questioning the authority and inspiration of God's word, calling Jesus a way, not the way. We see churches and denominations redefining God's truth on marriage and human sexuality. Why? All for the sake of accommodating the culture around us. What a tragedy. And Jesus spoke to this very compromise 2,000 years ago. This church in Pergamum had begun to lose their Christian conviction. And what a sad thing when Christians or churches or denominations give themselves over to the ways of this world and they accommodate the world, sacrificing their convictions, thereby losing the power of their testimony, their faithful witness for the sake of the gospel. It's a tragic thing. And friends, I'm going to tell you this morning, Jesus takes this compromise very seriously. And this leads me to my third observation from our passage this morning. In Jesus' letter to the church in Pergamum, we see a choice between banishment or banquet. We see a choice here between judgment, banishment, or reward, banqueting in the presence of our Savior, Jesus Christ. What's the answer to compromise? What's the answer to accommodating the world around us, whether as individuals or as churches? Jesus tells us here in verse 16. He says, therefore, repent. Jesus says, repent, change course, turn from your sin, leave it behind, pursue fidelity and obedience to me, your Savior and Lord. Friends, when we compromise, we need to repent. We need to turn away from our infidelity and our worship of false gods and our compromise with the world and pursue faithfulness. Returning to our first love, Jesus Christ. And look what happens, Jesus says, if we don't repent. Look look at the danger that we face if we don't repent. Verse 16, Jesus says, repent. If not, if you don't repent, he says, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. What a terrible image. Jesus warring against his church. What is the sword of his mouth here that Jesus speaks of? Friends, the sword of his mouth is the word of God. It's the truth of God revealed to us in Scripture. That's the sharp, double-edged sword that Jesus wields. It's the word. Hebrews 4.12, for example, tells us that the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. 2 Timothy 3.16-17 tells us that all scripture is breathed out by God. Why does the sword proceed from Jesus' mouth? Because it's breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, training, and righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Friends, this is the sword that Jesus wields. It's the sword of his word, and it's a sword of authority, declaring God's truth and will for our lives. It's a sword that brings life, saving anyone with a repentant heart. 
It's a sword of judgment meeting out justice against sin and rebellion. It's a great sword. It's a terrible sword. And we will all face that sword, either as a source of our life or a source of our judgment. What happens when Jesus wars against his church with the authority of his word? Friends, I want to remind you of what Jesus said to the church in Ephesus back in chapter 2, verse 5. In Revelation 2, verse 5, Jesus told the church in Ephesus what happens when he wars against his church. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Friends, Jesus warns the church when he comes in judgment, he will remove a church's lampstand. And what that means is he will remove his hand of blessing and that church's light will be snuffed out. It will cease to be a church. Jesus will judge that church and their effectiveness will be eliminated. Their their gospel testimony will be eradicated. Their light will be quenched. What a horrible thing. For a church to lose its light. And this is how Jesus judges those churches that compromise. I saw this in my own life 20 years ago. When I was just coming out of seminary, I got involved in a church movement known as the Emergent Church. This was a group of so-called Christians who claimed to be reaching the postmodern world with the message of Jesus Christ. And I thought that was a great calling. I was excited about, you know, reaching young people and people who had been influenced by postmodern culture. But as I became more involved with the emergent church, I quickly discovered that this movement was really denying God's objective truth. They were denying the authority of scripture. They were embracing false teachings like universalism, that everybody will be saved questioning the authority and inspiration of God's word, redefining God's truth. Friends, you want to know where the emergent church is today? 20 years ago, they were hosting conferences with thousands of people. They were the darlings of the Christian publishing industry. They were all over evangelicalism. But where are they today? They're gone. They're gone. They've been relegated to the, to the fringes of liberal progressive Christianity. Why? Because Jesus removed his hand of blessing. That's what he promises to do for churches that compromise. I, I think of the plight of mainline churches today and theologically liberal churches in America today. Churches that are redefining God's standards for marriage and sexuality questioning the authority and inspiration of God's word. Friends, what's happening to those churches today? They're dying. They're dying. People are leaving them in droves. I had a pastor who shared with me recently that he had been told by a member of his church that if he didn't change his sexual ethic, that he was going to lose the next generation. Friends, people have been saying that for 2,000 years going all the way back to Nicholas and the Nicolaitans. Oh, church, you got to compromise with the world. you gotta, you got to change and accommodate for the sake of the world. you got to go along to get along. Friends, accommodation with the world is never the answer. That's a sure-fire route to disaster. Accommodation is not the answer, friends. Repentance is. And the good news for us as Christians and for churches today, for any who have sacrificed their Christian convictions for the sake of accommodating the world around us, whether morally or theologically, is that Jesus offers all of us amazing grace. 
You see, when we repent of our worldliness, of our tolerance, of our compromise, when we return to our first love, Jesus Christ, and fidelity to his revealed truth in the word, the Lord promises us forgiveness. He promises us restored fellowship with him. He promises us the blessing of eternal rewards. Friends, this is what it means when Jesus says to the one who conquers, the one who conquers is the one who remains obedient to the Lord all the way to the end. See, what are the rewards that Christ promises to those who hold fast to him in his word? Look at how he ends his letter in verse 17. Again, we're going to talk more about these tomorrow night in our pastor study. But in verse 17, Jesus says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. And I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Friends, what are the rewards here that Jesus promises to all who conquer? He he promises them a portion of the hidden manna. Just like God supernaturally fed the Israelites in their wandering in the wilderness with, with this supernatural spiritual food, manna. And it sustained them and nourished them. Jesus promises his people who are faithful in the midst of persecution, who stand fast for his word, that he will feed them with hidden manna, a symbol of his eternal sustenance and fulfillment. And then Jesus tells them, I will give you a white stone with a new name inscribed on it. Friends, this white stone is a great symbol. It's a symbol of acquittal and of invitation, and of intimacy. You see, in the ancient world, when when a jury was hearing a court case, the jury would be given a white stone or a black stone. And if the jury voted to acquit, they would place the white stone in front of the judge. It was a symbol of acquittal. And friends, Jesus promises us a white stone, symbolizing our acquittal our victory over sin because of what he has done for us on the cross. We have been cleansed in the eyes of God. It's a symbol of invitation in the ancient world. When you were invited to a party or a banquet, the host would give those people who were invited a white stone. And when they showed up for the party, they would turn over the white stone as their ticket for admission. And here Jesus tells us he's going to give us a white stone. It's our ticket, our invitation to the heavenly banquet that he will hold for the faithful bride of Christ. It's a stone that's inscribed with a new name on it, Jesus says. In the ancient world, friends, to give someone a new name or to know someone's name was a sign of intimacy. We see this throughout the Bible where Jesus gives numerous people new names. It's a symbol of intimacy, of a special relationship. And here Jesus tells us he's going to give us these white stones, symbolizing our acquittal in God's eyes, our invitation to the heavenly banquet, the symbol of intimacy between us and our heavenly father. Friends, maybe you're watching this morning and you've been convicted by Jesus's letter to the church in Pergamum. If so, Let me encourage you, take the Lord's words to heart. As Jesus says here in verse 17, he who has an ear, let him hear. Friends, are you hearing the word this morning? Maybe you've been compromising your Christian convictions. Maybe you've been flirting with accommodation with the world. Maybe you've become so tolerant of worldly values and worldly beliefs that you no longer look any different from the world around you. Friends, if that's where you are this morning, Jesus says, repent, repent. In 1 John 1, 9, the Apostle John tells us that if we confess our sins, Jesus is faithful and just, and he will forgive us of our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. This is true, friends, for both individuals and for churches. When we repent and confess our sins, Jesus will give us new life. Let me ask you, do you need to repent today? If so, Jesus will wash you white as snow. He'll cleanse you. 
Friends, this letter to the church in Pergamum is a powerful word to us this morning. It's a reminder to us today that Jesus Christ is both sovereign and Lord. And I'll tell you something, both of those titles demand our allegiance. They require our wholehearted devotion. They call for our uncompromising conviction. Is Jesus your sovereign and Lord? If so, I want to encourage you this morning. Stand tall for him. Hold fast to him. And always rejoice in him. Because, friends, there is nothing greater than living for the cause of the gospel and our Lord Jesus Christ. Let me close in prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this word that we so need to hear this morning. This warning against losing our conviction, this exhortation to stand fast on the truth of your word, to hold fast to the name of Jesus and the power of the gospel and your revealed truth in the face of a world that every day tempts us to compromise, an enemy that's fighting against us, leading us into accommodation with the immorality and worldliness and false beliefs in our world today. God, help us to stand fast by the power of your word and the authority of your name and the amazing grace that we receive in Jesus Christ. Help us to stand fast as your church. Lord, we don't want to lose your blessing here at Lakes Free. We don't want to lose your blessing in our lives individually. And so, Lord, if there's anything within us today that is hindering our relationship with you, I pray, God, that we would take your words to heart, that we would repent and turn from our sin, turn from the error of our ways. And come back to you and pursuing fidelity with your truth and will for our lives. So that we once again can experience your amazing grace and walk anew in fidelity and faithfulness. Jesus, we thank you for the promise of eternal rewards to those who conquer. May we keep our eyes on that promise and be inspired by those promises to pursue you with all integrity, with all faithfulness so that the world might see us as a people and a church shining brightly the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We pray this in your precious name. Amen. Friends, I want to thank you for joining us this morning. Let me leave you with these great words from the book of Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Let that be your encouragement this morning. May God bless you. Have a great week and we'll see you soon.